Well, hello there, and welcome to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Benjamin Ayanian back to the program. Ben, you've been on here before, but I know there are some folks who are going to be hearing you for the first time. Take just a minute and uh, tell us just a little bit about who you are. Yeah, I'm a Young Voices uh, contributor, obviously. I'm appearing on this show here, and um, I recently graduated from the University of Minnesota, studied business law, poli-sci, and philosophy. Um, and so I've been doing a lot of uh, freelance writing lately. Well, I'm looking at one of your articles uh, published in spectator.org, and uh, it's the urge to legislate lives loudly within politicians. And since, you know, most of the state legislatures just convened for the new year, and boy, they're going for it. What a timely uh, article. Now, in particular, you talk about how when some notable event takes place, it's almost like they can't help themselves. Uh, politicians... They, they have to legislate. Talk to me about uh, why, why that may not be the best response to, to a given event. Yeah, so you hit the nail on the head. Um, I said in my article, politicians love to make use of a crisis. You know, never let a good crisis go to waste, as the old verbiage goes. And so um, I don't think that that is a great idea because a lot of times um, when in the time of crises, there's a lot of, you know, passion there's um, a lot of emotions. There's a lot of demand for government action, and there's um, politicians racing to get something through to show, you know, the American citizenry that they're doing something about, you know, the ailments we are facing. And I don't think that that's the best way to go about um, creating new legislation. A lot of times, legislation has unintended consequences. In the times of crises, it's easier for politicians to capitalize on those crises to push forward legislation that uh, might sound good, um, at least in the name of the bill, but actually would threaten our individual liberties and freedoms. And so um, even, you know, um, James Madison, his whole political philosophy was about slowing down the government process. He thought that when impassioned momentary majorities were making laws, they would not be using reason um, when governing and we were more likely to end up with poor legislation. You know, you mentioned the word emotion, and um, specifically, I think of any time there is a high-profile event involving shooting. And I know the, the impression is, you know, well, it's a, look at this, it's, it's going on, but statistically, your chances of dying in a mass shooting are still somewhere below winning the lottery. So, you know, we, we tend to, to, to sometimes blow that out of proportion. But I sometimes wonder if politicians don't realize they've got this window of opportunity where emotions are going to be running high, people are going to be angry and upset and demanding something be done, and they have to move very quickly, or that window closes and rational thinking returns, and then people start to question, oh, wait a minute, you want to do what? And so that's what I, in my opinion, that's why they push so hard, you know, while, you know, while the body is still warm, essentially. Yeah, it's a way for them to get, you know, their favored, uh, you know, pet legislative projects, um, some momentum behind them. We see them after mass shootings, as you just pointed out, all kinds of calls, you know, for gun control start swirling around and um, different, you know, ideas tend to hit the floor in Congress that would not actually stop these events from occurring. 
Um, and since, you know, we're shown mass shootings a lot, you know, that they don't happen frequently, but every time they happen, we're shown them. And so there's an availability bias there where, you know, politicians, journalists, the citizenry, you know, we tend to think they're more common than they are. Um, and so when one does occur, ca politicians can say, OK, we need to do X, Y and Z. Um, there are things like, you know, capping how much how many bullets um, your magazines can carry, what type of firearms you can buy, how old you can be when you can buy a firearm. All kinds of things are floated every time a mass shooting um, happens. And um, a lot of times, you know, what's being proposed would infringe upon our rights, um, infringe upon our right to self-defense and our ability to defend ourselves without actually making us any safer from um criminals who want to inflict as much harm as possible. And you mentioned in your article, it's it's not just, you know, the gun control um, advocates who are jumping at the chance. Uh, you mentioned you know, when Roe v. Wade was overturned, um, there, there was talk about, well, hey, we need to we need to take the filibuster off the table. OK, what what's the what's the problem with that picture? We, we, we want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like politicians don't take action um while also asking themselves, am I OK with this change if someone else was in power? And I think that's a question that needs to be asked whenever we're talking about new laws or new processes. Um, and so, yeah, with when Roe v. Wade was struck down, there were calls from Joe Biden for Congress to codify Roe v. Wade, um, which um, Congress already does not have the authority to do that. It, um, and so that was already an unconstitutional desire. But he said um, that he would like them to try regardless. And he said that there should be an exception made for the filibuster in any attempts to do so. And, you know, the, if we start making exceptions to the filibuster, where is the line drawn? Um, the filibuster is a very important check on the passions of momentary majorities. Um, and without it, we would see more rushed legislation um, and if, again, if Democrats made an exception for this project, when Republicans are in power, they'll find a way to make an exception for another project. And the, all of the power of the filibuster would basically be slowly eroded until it's ruined. You pointed out another topic that I know is on a lot of people's minds, and that is the uh, FTX collapse and how, how that's being used not just to address the problem with what happened with the FTX cryptocurrency, but now we need to regulate all cryptocurrencies. That, that sounds kind of self-serving, at least on the part of people who may have been wanting to do that all along. Oh, look, we have an excuse. Well, and, and especially if you take a look at the bill that was introduced in the direct aftermath of the FDX collapse, it was um, introduced primarily by Elizabeth Warren, you know, in collaboration with others. But um, it really was just a bill um, about gaining greater financial surveillance over citizens. It would have done absolutely nothing to address um, the problem that we saw with FTX, the problem that we see with some other centralized exchange, um, crypto exchanges. And so, you know, because there's something in the media, a crash of a huge, you know, exchange, there's fraud involved. Um, it, it, like you said, it opens up that window for politicians to say, we need to do something. So they throw out a bill that has nothing to do with the problem that we're actually facing. Um, which is deception, fraud, um, and the instability of certain centralized exchanges. And instead, they push a crypto bill, and it is a crypto bill, but it is just purely about financial oversight 
of individual like americans um wow. it increases surveillance um it was it was a terrible bill i honestly i i implore um all of you to go read it um it, it's a six seven page pdf will take you 10 minutes at most Wow. So there, there's a better way. And this is not, you know, we're not trying to suggest that, hey, just because something happens doesn't mean that, you know, legislators should never act. But it's that acting in haste that uh, that really can come back to bite us. Um, you're probably familiar with Frederick Bastiat, his essay, That Which Is Seen, That Which Is Not Seen. Um, you know, let's talk about what knee-jerk reactions do in terms of, okay, here's what we want to accomplish, but what about the things that they're not looking at? Right. It, it's about the unforeseen consequences. And that um, is the mark. You know, a lot of economists will say that that's the mark of a good economist is someone who looks who thinks about second order consequences, things that, you know, aren't directly seen. Um, and so that and that's the problem. Politicians oftentimes either aren't looking for those second order effects or they don't care because they can chalk it up as a win that they got something passed in the time of a crisis and they can you know, go on every news station and say, look, I'm doing something. But the question is rarely raised enough of, is what you're doing good though? Um, a lot of you know the crypto regulation we hear being pushed in result um, in the aftermath of the FTX collapse, it would not be good. It would hamper innovation. It would hurt um, competition. And so it, we really need to be careful as citizens um, about demanding action in response to crises. There, there is a place for legislation um, when things go wrong, uh, but we truly need to think, okay, is this good? And is it good compared to what? Um, what is the alternative? And so uh, the urge to legislate definitely lives loudly in our politicians. So uh, let's be careful about that. You know, when you view it in that context, it, it makes sense why um, lawmaking power was delegated to a deliberative body or actually two deliberative bodies in the case of, you know, the United States government, because it's something that it should be discussed. And, you know, yeah, it takes time. Sometimes it's cumbersome. Sometimes there are people who are going to, you know, drag their feet. But the alternative is let's uh, you know, look, let's leap before we look and then deal with the consequences afterwards. Unfortunately, it seems like the people who make the legislation very rarely have to be the ones to bear the consequences of a miscalculation. Yeah, absolutely. That that's a, a major problem. Um, you know, we even saw that. Let's say during the um, COVID nineteen pandemic, we saw yep. politicians, you know, advocating for lockdown, and then they're getting caught um, going out and having dinner or going on vacations. And so, yes, it is very important that they're subject to the rule of law as well. Again, we are talking with Benjamin Benjamin Ayanian. Uh, where can people find you on social media? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Benjamin Ayanian, um, and you can find me on Instagram at theayanian13. Um, that's where I post all of my articles and conversations. Welcome back. This is Moving Forward with Young Voices. And here's another familiar voice. Contributor David McGarry joins us. David, I'm sure a lot of folks will recognize your name. Some will recognize your voice. Some are hearing you for the first time. Let's uh, let's learn just a little bit about who you are and what you do. Tell us about yourself. Thank you so much for having me back on the show. Um, my name, as you said, is David McGarry. And with Young Voices and in other publications, I have written extensively on tech policy and consumer choice issues. Um, and 
the piece that we're going to discuss today gets into a little bit of sociology um, and into a slightly more thoughtful place. I, I like this. This is a, an article published in Spectator.org. BlackRock's failures are a warning for all institutions. Now, I've heard I've heard BlackRock come up from time to time in the news, and I, personally, I associate it with, oh, are they the guys who are buying up properties and buying up homes and buildings all over the world? But tell me a little bit more about what BlackRock is, and then let's talk about uh, where they may have stepped in it as an institution. BlackRock is an investment firm, and an investment firm that has committed itself to ESG investing, which stands for environmental, social, and governance investing. And basically, basically what this means is that the folks over at BlackRock will be taking funds, um, and instead of trying to simply turn the highest return possible, um, they will try to invest in opportunities that will further these other goals. Um, if it seems like I'm being slightly nonspecific about this, it's because oftentimes these goals are ill-defined and can even vary slightly from person to person. Um, but we've seen that for all the good intentions um, that come with ESG investing, it generally returns lower returns. I could see why. I mean, look, I think the intentions are good, but as uh, as an investment firm, don't they have a fiduciary, ex, um, you know, uh, accountability and responsibility to the people who have put money into into that company? And um, just because they're doing something that is environmentally or socially or you know governance friendly, that may not translate well into the people who actually you know whose money is at stake. Well, that's exactly what um, officials from several states are saying. Um, and uh, as I as I wrote, these these states are essentially looking at BlackRock, and they are growing concerned that the retirement funds that have been invested for for citizens of of, of these states um, are being misinvested, and that their citizens will not see the return the maximum return um, on these investments. Yeah, well, as you point out in your article, when something's driven by ideology rather than profit. I mean, again, their hearts may be in the right place, but is is that the reason that company exists, <laughs> or do they exist, you know, to to provide a return on investment for for their investors? Right. Well, the the breaking news of the day, as I have written uh, to quote myself, as I've written in a, in a different piece, um, if I can be so distasteful. Um, but the breaking news of the day is that scarce resources remain scarce. Right. You can't have your cake and eat it too. This is a basic um, reality of economics. Trade-offs are real, folks. So, what you hit on, though, which sort of gets to the second half of my piece, is that as a society and as individuals, we need strong institutions that do their jobs well. Meaning that even in the absence—excuse uh, me—in the absence of some flashy, fancy. Um, world bettering agenda, simply investing people's funds so that they can enjoy a secure and comfortable and happy retirement is a good in and of itself that must be done by someone and that by allowing itself to be distracted by these other concerns, BlackRock and similar investment managers are um, are they're advocating their responsibility 
And that is both from a fiduciary and from a moral and societal perspective. I see in your article, and I'm not really surprised to, to learn this, that uh, one of the concerns with ESG investing, at least according to the North Carolina Treasurer's Office, was 19 of the 20 best performing companies in the S&P 500 were companies producing fossil fuels. And right now, they're, they're kind of, uh, I don't know, they're on the rocks. That's a very unpopular place to be. It seems like uh, government is actively lining up and trying to, to take some of those companies out of uh, play. No, that's, that's entirely right. And I, I think this is a problem that is operative not only in the ESG investment space, but also if you look at some folks um, who are uh, who are government monetary officials, they're suggesting that banks and the government should essentially push out um, fossil fuel companies, not by innovation um, and not through competition, but simply by very slowly um, lessening, lessening drip by drip their uh, their access to funds until they are no longer competitive from this sort of artificial strangulation. Well, it's good to see that there is some moral pushback, and or there's some pushback at least from from some of the states. Um, I, I have to think that uh, the the stockholders, the investors, at some level would would have a voice in this. Uh, do, do are they able to persuade these companies? You know, hey, maybe ESG isn't isn't the right move. You know, for for our bottom line, or does that fall on deaf ears? No, that's a fantastic point. Um, as I said, scarce resources remain scarce and shall remain scarce. Um, and a lot of the rhetoric from maybe unthoughtful but well-intentioned advocates of ESG and other forms of stakeholder capitalism and similar ideas, um, they found that their, their, um, their assertions that all of these things really don't lower returns and that in the long run this pays off, they're finding that that simply isn't true. Mm. Um, and they're finding that the theory and the concept is flawed um, so, I mean, I think that the market is actually providing a good response to this, slower slower than we would wish, and that's fine. Um, but, you know, oftentimes the market doesn't snap to for anyone's desires, whether that is the, the free marketeers or whether that's the socialists. The market works at its own pace. So we are seeing, like I said, we are, we are seeing lower returns from these ESG investors. And I think that over time, more and more folks will wake up to the fact that if they want to go and take that hit, that can be their choice. But if they're just looking to, as I said, provide some financial security for themselves and their families, they will make other decisions. David, talk to me about um, mission creep as it applies to institutions and what can other institutions learn from what BlackRock is doing? Yeah, this is very important. Um, there's There's a lot of talk out there about how Americans don't trust institutions anymore, right? They say that, um, uh, we don't trust Congress, right? There's 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 many reports of various places of worship um, uh, uh, losing standing in their communities because um, because religious leaders have started preaching politics from the pulpit. Um, I cite the ACLU that once stood for civil rights and now sort of just stands for left wing orthodoxy, even when the two are in conflict um, and. All of these are institutions where where leadership has abdicated the fundamental 
um, responsibility that they have, again, to that core mission. So an example that I didn't cite in the piece, but I think is very important is the NRA, right? I, I think that if we go back several years, you'll find that the NRA was much more focused specifically and almost monomaniacally, but in the good way, um, on promoting gun rights and being a credible gun rights activist um, organization. And through the years, as they broaden their mandate into more general right-wing punditry, um, they lost a lot of credibility uh, on their on their core issue, and they were no longer able to protect the Second Amendment in the way that they once were. Yeah, I can tell you as someone who used to be a pretty staunch NRA supporter, um, there came a point where I actually started to wonder, do they find job security in actually helping perpetuate, you know, gun control measures, you know, so they have a reason to exist and to send out the fundraising letters. Maybe that's wrong to ask that, but, um, but I, I understand. I saw the shift and I saw, you know, they're, they're not standing for what they once did. We're, we're down to just a few seconds left here. Again, we're talking with David McGarry. David, where can people follow you on social media? Where's the best place to access your work? Find me at David B. McGarry on Twitter. You can also find my Young Voices contributor page um, and most everything that I write or um, most of the media hits that I do end up on one of those two fora. Fantastic. Great to catch up with you once again. We'll talk again soon. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, I'm happy to welcome Peter Pischke, who is a Young Voices contributor. Peter, actually, I hope I'm saying your name correctly. I meant to ask you oh, before. Oh, yeah, no, you got it. Okay, got thank it. you. Whew, all right, I'm going to cross that one off my list. Peter, for p- folks who are meeting you for the first time, talk to us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, my name is Peter Pischke. I am a journalist and reporter. I work with the wonderful... Uh, libertarian journalism organization, Young Voices. Uh, My training is in health and disability journalism. I report regularly on the opioid crisis and its many facets, particularly from the standpoint of how it affects patients. Uh, And you can kind of, I write about all kinds of things. I'm a very eclectic reporter, so you can find my stuff all over the place from talking about video games to talking about cancer patients. It's a fun mix there. Well, I'm looking at an article that you wrote for USA Today. The CDC has abandoned pain patients. Its new opioid gui- opioids mm-hmm. guidelines are all for show. I was not aware that the CDC had updated its opioid guidelines. Walk us through what they were before and, and what, uh, what exactly did the CDC do in terms of updating them? Yeah, sure. So in 2016, um, under the leadership director, Lex Frieden, he had decided that the CC should have a, a stance, a position on opioid prescribing. This is the Centers for Disease Control. Having a stance on prescribing for anything is not in their mandate, but they decide this was for whatever reason. That's what they went with. Uh, and it brought forth what we refer to as the opioid prohibition. Effectively, it pushed forward regulations CC did not have the power to do, but other organizations, state legislatures, federal government, law enforcement, state medical boards interpreted as such. Um, We don't quite have the time to get into all the ins and outs, pretty complex document, but overall it meant that to solve the opioid crisis as they saw it, this is how um, for example, the DEA sought that they would arrest uh, physicians to stop them from being able to give pills to patients, and that somehow would stop the illicit, which means it's not anything that's actually being prescribed, opioid crisis. 
of course, this didn't work. And unfortunately, it had a terrible backlash on patients, many of which no longer can access pain medicine. Um, we forward six years. After six years of begging, um, the American Medical Association, patient organizations, whole oodles of people begging the organization to do something about it. They finally get around to it. Oh, thank you, CC. You finally took, you took the time out of your hard day to, to talk to us. And it, they said up front, oh, we're doing this to help the patients. This is, the, this is great. We don't want people to hurt patients. And then that's at the front of the document. And then when you read the part that they actually send out to people, so that like, for example, the tables and evidence, it's stricter. So it's not bad enough that this new update is uh, uh, stricter limits, which makes it harder for prescribers and physicians, obviously, uh, and the patients they take care of, but it's worse the sense that's very two-faced. Um, it's just not very ethical at all. And we are fortunately are gonna see some terrible repercussions. I'm already hearing it about it from some of the patients that I talk with and prescribers, and uh, it's not great. Well, that's sad. I mean, and I, I know physicians who have expressed to me, and this is this is over the years. I mean, even even before 2016, they were saying, you got to be really careful if you prescribe pain medication to somebody. Um, there there are plenty of you know DEA agents you know watching mm -hmm. carefully. And boy, if there's one thing that they don't like, you know, they're going to say, well, you're just a you're a you're a an opioid mill or a pill mill, and basically uh, fraudulently prescribing. Now, that does happen from time to time, but that's the exception yes. rather than the rule. And it sounds like those those guidelines, uh, especially going into 2016, tended to treat every physician as you're a potential fraudulent prescriber and, and basically put them on a very, very short leash. A am I wrong in characterizing it like that? No, no that, that is, that's correct. That's largely correct. Um, intentions don't matter so much. And that's something that I think the CDC is ignoring in this update. No one cares what your opinion is on this this CDC. It's what you wrote down. And unfortunately, how it was interpreted, and they know this, they know this better than anyone else, is that they saw this as a clarion call to come after prescribers. And that has had a terrible uh, ripple effect on so many people, not just people who are like pain patients uh, who might need something for oxy to deal with like a severe pain issue, like MS, but also cancer patients, people who are at the end of their life, people who are dying, cannot access pain medicine. And there's no justification. Even if you are the stringest, most pro-drug warrior out there, you would never say it's okay to take someone that's dying from lung cancer, say, no, you can't have pain medicine. Yeah. Now, this is something. I mean, you understand. You actually have have had to deal with uh, with chronic yes. pain, correct? Correct. People and look, I, I was guilty of this until I actually started having back problems. I kind of thought, oh, come on, you know, harden up and you know, just grit mm -hmm. your teeth and be like a pioneer, or whatever. And then I started to experience, you know, some back problems and went, holy cow! How can people live with this on a day to day basis? So I, I know there are people out there who will abuse drugs. There are people who, you know, become addicted. But there are people who legitimately need help managing, you know, crippling pain. And, and somehow it just doesn't seem fair to lump them into the, well, they're probably having a good time if they're taking this medication. It's frustrating. I am a chronic pain patient. Exactly. I was just like you before I became disabled. I just thought, I'll just tough it out. That's a very American attitude. We People really do believe that if you don't treat pain, it'll be okay. You know, you just toughen through it and you'll be okay. They don't understand that untreated pain can lead to terrible comorbidities, can make people sick, exacerbate illnesses they already had. It can kill people in some cases. You know, that's what shock is. <laughs> it, but for whatever reason, I think it's because we're, we're, you know, we're the tough frontier people. Uh, we don't like to think of pain that way. We think 
think it's just a feeling. It's a sensation. It happens. You get through it. That's it. And unfortunately, that is not how the body works. Wow. So I have to ask, what drives that uh, that need to be in control? You know, um, to make sure that uh, that these opioids are not being overprescribed or that people aren't abusing them. Is, is there a lobbying group behind it, or is this just the? I don't. Is there is there a puritanical impulse in in some of these regulators to to make sure nobody's enjoying themselves? I would not call it puritanical impulse so much as an impulse of don't blame me. And that's kind of what Mm. this update screams very loudly. Yes, there is a huge lobbying effort to go after uh, pharmaceutical companies and physicians. Um, Some of this is willful ignorance, people that don't want to think about this issue beyond what's what's in the hot topic in the media today. Um, Some people in addiction medicine go after this. Law enforcement, of course, loves this because, you know, like how they went after the mafia in the 90s. If you want to get ahead at a place like your your local police force or at the DEA, you get, you know, you get a prescriber, you know, you walk in front of the cameras, looks great. Um, there are a lot of perverse incentives, and that's a huge topic unto itself. Unfortunately, there aren't that many people out there that are speaking up for the patients that those have authority. We do have places like the American Medical Association, and we are very grateful to have them. <laughs> but there aren't too many big organizations that are willing to take the heat and say, hey, hold up, guys, maybe some people should still be allowed pain medication. Yeah, what you're, I, I'm going to give you one example that I'm aware of, and this was uh, a family, uh, the, the mother was elderly, she, I think she, she had cancer and was dying painfully, so she had some pretty, uh, pretty strong opioids in the house, and um, she, she died, and I mean, the, they hadn't even taken her body away, the mortuary hadn't even come to, to remove her remains, and the police were at the house demanding hand over whatever's left of her prescriptions from her family, and I was like... I, you it know. gets crazy. It gets crazy. Um, like you see in the stories about fentanyl, you will see this all over the place. Some cop, they passed out. They just touched some fentanyl. It was a powder on a, on a jacket or a wallet or whatever. They're absolutely bubkiss. The, there are so many studies on fentanyl because it's a main drug. People use fentanyl every day in hospitals. It's a huge component that makes modern medicine possible, especially end-of-life care, cancer surgery. That isn't how it works. But there's a psychosomatic effect. There's something in, in the water in our narrative right now. And that's just kind of people, how they feel about it. it it's a little bit in similar in the way to the AIDS epidemic was where people were overestimating the risk and not looking at the the actual statistics and how it was impacting people, which, of course, means you underplay the damage it does. You you overplay the potential risk. And then you know, no one no one as serious person actually gets into it. Uh, we've only got a, a minute and a half left here, but I have to ask you about this. The CDC says, hey, all we're issuing is guidelines, but those guidelines feel an awful lot like mandates. And this is not true just with yep. the opioids. Masks on airplanes, I know right now that's a hot topic that's that's being debated by Congress. How did the CDC morph into some kind of a, an organization that seems to have regulatory, maybe even lawmaking power? Too much money, too big of an organization, too much pressure from people. When they became the de facto health people you go to, and they could be blamed for anything that goes wrong, then they had to try to stop anything that might go wrong. It's, it's human nature. Yeah, it's uh, it, it sounds like it's taking us down a course that, that's going to have some unintended consequences, one of which is people who legitimately need these uh, these pain medications are, are going to be treated as potential criminals for needing those medications. And, and somehow that seems to defeat the purpose of, uh, you know, stopping real abuse or, um, you know, illegal practices with those drugs. 
I agree. And hey, there are other countries that prescribed opioids. You don't have this problem in Japan. You don't have this problem in the UK or Germany or France. And they had a rise of prescription opioids during the same time period in the 90s and 2000s that we did. They don't have this problem. So it's not the pills. Something else is going on, but we're not allowed to talk about it. And the consequences of that means that people who actually need this stuff are being hurt badly. All right. We are talking with Peter Pischke. Uh, Peter, let's uh, first of all, give our, our listeners a chance to find out where can they find your work? Where can they follow you on social media? Yeah, that's great. Um, I do a lot on Twitter. I'm at Happy Warrior P. I also have the Happy Warrior Substack. And I do a podcast, Culturescape, which is more fun stuff. And you'll find my stuff here and there. This article with USA Today, that was uh, a, tr- a true blessing. I'm really grateful I could work with USA Today on that article. And the outreach has been incredible. And I thank your listeners for, uh, for considering this. I know this isn't a popular issue, but it does affect a lot of people. Welcome back. This is our fourth and final segment today of Moving Forward with Young Voices. I'm happy to welcome Caden Rosenbaum back to the program. He is a Young Voices contributor, also the Technology and Innovation Policy Analyst at Libertas Institute, which is based in Lehigh. And uh, Caden, you're actually working out out of New York City, but uh, thanks for joining us again. It's good to catch up with you. Thanks for having me, Brian. It's always a pleasure to come on board. I, I've probably with you. I've probably left uh, left off a few of the the different hats you wear. Is there anything more you'd like to tell us about who you are and what you do? Um, yeah, so I am a I I work for Libertas. I am their tech and innovation policy analyst, but I'm also a Young Voices contributor, uh, speaker, and writer, and uh, amateur photography person here in New York. And uh, I like to make music and things and take pictures in my free time. But besides that, I really try to focus on tech and innovation. That's where uh, that's where my skill set is probably <laughs> most valuable, I'd say. Sounds like um, it sounds like New York would be a really rich environment for uh, for oh, exercising yeah. some of those those talents. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You just get here and you feel more creative. People don't really care about politics like they did in D.C. where I used to live. And they all kind of care about what they're up to. Right. They're making some art or they're taking pictures or making music on the streets or something. And I just love it. I think it's fantastic. I'm looking at an article that you uh, wrote, actually co-wrote with an intern, uh, Sebastian Anastasi. 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 Yeah. Sebastian is great. Yeah. About Linda Kahn's uh, Federal Trade Commission war on gaming. And okay, I'm going to admit, I'm not a gamer, but my kids are pretty serious (laughs) about this kind of stuff. Um, Yeah. I had no idea that the FTC was taking such an interest in in virtual reality and gaming, among other things. Um, Talk to me a little bit about what got the FTC uh, taking a good, hard look at at gaming in the first place. Well, so I think gaming is really more of a a bystander uh, here. And and what is an overall push by the FTC to look at big tech companies and try to uh, really cut them down to size is the better way of saying it. Um, and it all kind of goes back to what Lena Khan has been saying this entire time. You know, Chair Khan, before she was Chair Khan, wrote a, a law review article, and it was called Amazon's Antitrust Paradox. And it laid out that uh, big tech companies like Amazon uh, had a risk of predatory copy of other harms that weren't necessarily going to fit into the consumer welfare standard. But in the future, you know, we could... We could say if we weren't economists, if we were not economists, in the future we could say uh, Amazon is probably going to monopolize this market. Now the problem with that 
is that it, it, it's a newer version of an old antitrust uh, philosophy called the Brandeisian movement. And that was back in the days before we trusted economists to help us with court decisions. And it was, it was really put in the back burner to what is now the consumer welfare standard, which in the last year or so was overturned. That was the correct way to do it, was to look at economists and say, hey, is this, can you forecast this being a monopoly in the future? If not, if this is good for consumers, they're not presenting a present harm to consumers right now. I mean, think about Walmart, for example, lower prices, better value. Uh, if Walmart's not hurting consumers, they're giving them better value uh, for lower prices they're not a monopoly, or at least they're not uh, perpetrating consumer harms. But what Lena Khan is uh, recreating is the Brandeisian movement, and others have called it the Neo-Brandeisian movement, right? This newer movement to go after companies, A, because they're big, but B, because we can imagine some harm. And so Meta, which is a virtual reality company, a social media company, you know, a, a lot of different hats are worn by Meta, but Meta is one of the, the leading targets of the neo-Brandeisians. And what Meta has done with VR is introduce a headset that really makes it a consumer price, it makes it accessible at a consumer price point, right? So for people like me, uh, I have a VR headset now because it was affordable and it used to be like $1,000, now it's down to like 300. Um, but what they've also done is started to create apps within those headsets. And think about virtual reality in general, it's a whole other world, it's a world in encapsulated in these headsets. And so what the FTC is claiming, against Meta at least, is that Meta is trying to monopolize the virtual reality space hmm. by buying what, what, uh, what was maybe blocked, by buying a company called Within that made a, an app, it's, a, it's an app maker, and it made an app uh, for Quest headsets and other headsets, and they decided to buy the studio so that they can make more apps and more like exercise apps. And so the FTC is claiming that doing so is a future harm. We can perceive that buying this company would monopolize the virtual reality space. And then uh, a couple months passed. I had Sebastian go research it. I didn't really know what we wanted to do with it. And he got really jazzed about it, wrote this article for us about the thing. And then I made it sit there because uh, first of all, I, I understand where Lena Khan is coming from, and I respect her rise to chairmanship very much. I think it's very inspiring for me personally. I mean, four years out of law school, you're chair of the FTC. That's great for me because I'm only three years out of law school. Um, and so I, I think that that's great. But at the same time, what he was saying was it, it was resonating, right? He was saying, you know, this isn't an economic theory. This is a legal argument. And so a couple months passed, and Microsoft announced that they were going to buy Activision. Activision is a uh, gaming company, you know, Activision Blizzard. And so this would have been the next step from Xbox uh, to, to be making its own games as well. And uh, about a month ago, the FTC announced, nope, we're going to try to get that blocked as well. And that was when uh, the headline just immediately popped in my head. The FTC's war on gaming, right? It's the bystander of what is becoming a push against tech companies to stop them from acquiring companies. Um, and that's that's harmful for startups. I mean, first of all, that want to have a buyout at the end of their term, right? They have this product and they work really hard to have that bought so that they can move on to the next product and the company can take it from there and make it big. Um, but it's also harmful just for, for mergers and acquisitions, things that grow the economy. Think about Quest, for example. The Quest headset is not worse, but it's cheaper. And I wrote an article way in the past about Ring Doorbell being acquired by Amazon. It's not worse, it's cheaper, and it's better. right? These kinds of acquisitions that take technologies and put them in the consumer market are 
good for our economy in general. And the FTC's latest push is to stop all of that activity and assume that only little companies can make good things or, or grow good things. Wow. So, talk to me a little bit about the uh, consumer welfare standard, because that was that was what came before. For 40 years, that, uh, mm -hmm. that worked. Uh, what exactly was it? So, the consumer welfare standard was very simple. You know, if you look at a, an acquisition or a proposed merger, right, and every merger that's, you know, above a certain threshold, I forget what it is, but every merger goes before the FTC and they say, FTC, we would like to merge. Do you have any qualms? And the FTC would go through the consumer welfare standard. And if there were no issues, you know, because the consumer welfare standard was not violated, then it would be allowed to go through. And so the consumer welfare standard really is just to look at the merger and to say, is there a potential risk that consumers will be harmed? So say there's two railroads in the country and they want to merge. I mean, the potential risk that consumers are going to be harmed is that there's zero competition. That's not great. Um, but it's, it's not a... There's not like a bright line test. It's very, you know, subjective to a lot of factors. And so obviously there's a lot of factors that go into the consumer welfare standard, but you know, just the basic idea is will consumers be harmed? Um, is this proposed to, you know, raise prices and uh, jack down quantity or, or something like that that would harm consumers? And if not, the merger is not invalid. It should go through, right? And then after that, if someone wants to, um, challenge the merger or, or challenge the activity, it also, through the court system, goes through the consumer welfare standard. And they say, you know, on the whole, are consumers harmed or are they not? And, and that's been the, the standard for like 40 years now, since this uh, 1983 FTC guidance statement that uh, my former boss, Baron Zoka, was always quoting when I was an intern for him. Um, and it's it's been the guiding standard for the FTC. And guiding standards for agencies like the FTC that have the power of enforcement very important because it signals to the market something that's very certain, right? This is what we're going to do if you do XYZ activity. Um, I've said this before, but you know, guidance standards incentivize conduct. And so that was a very certain thing for the market. And now that it's been rescinded by the, the new Lena, Lena Khan's FTC, uh, that creates a lot of uncertainty because there has to be a guiding principle that's grounded in consumer protection for the FTC. And if it's not the consumer welfare standard, I'm not sure what else they have in mind, right? Other than just subjective, uh, we're going to sue you and figure it out. And that's really costly in legal costs and in court administrative fees. Caden, does it come down to, uh, is this a direction the FTC was drifting for some time before Lena Khan became the uh, chairwoman? Or is this more of a product of she's just taking a more aggressive stance? You know, her, uh, her uh, mentor, former boss, Commissioner Chopra, actually uh, was a big factor in this, right? He recently stepped down, but he was pushing this as well. And I think that though the real trigger point was when she became chair, right? When she became chair and they took a vote on it because they had a 3-2 majority in favor of it. Um, so this is really a product of, of Lena Khan's new neo-Brandeisian movement. And even though I respect her a ton, um, it's still bad for the market. And I, and I think that that's worth saying for sure. All right, we are talking with Caden Rosenbaum. He is a Young Voices contributor as well as the Technology and Innovation Policy Analyst at Libertas Institute, which is based in Lehigh, Utah. Caden, where can people follow you on social media? Where can they find your writing? 
For sure. Uh, so first of all, you can find me on Libertas.com. It's pronounced in Libertas, but Libertas, phonetically speaking, is, you know, Liberty, but toss. Uh, and then you can also find me on, on Twitter at, at Caden Rosenbaum, just at C-A-D-E-N-R-O-S-E-N-B-A-U-M. Uh, and I'm there tweeting or posting something all the time. Come find me. All right. Great to talk with you. Hope we talk again soon. Thanks, Brian.